chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 22. As everybody's heading out to their classes and things like that, I remind you again, December 31st, uh, we'll be um, doing a sermon with that I would encourage you, if you're not here, to get a chance to listen to it. I encourage you to listen to it a couple of times. Uh, not because it's going to be some phenomenal thing, but the concepts we're talking about, Lord willing, will make sense. Um, I'm not trying to say the 31st is going to be phenomenal. I, I just, I'm really excited to uh, share what I believe God is calling us to as a church um, in the years and to come. And so, uh, with that being said, uh, I would just strongly also remind you, too, that next the two Sundays, we do not have Sunday school. Uh, if you come for Sunday school, you'll just be hanging out with me. So that depends. If you show up, that means you want to hang out with me. But uh, we will have a Christmas Eve and Christmas um, Eve service and a Christmas evening Eve service. So let me pray. Dearly Father, thank you. That it's by your grace we stand. As we have the opportunity to sing these songs about bringing an offering of worship to you, Dearly Father, may our lives be that. Thank you for this text and how it has impacted my life, and I pray that as we open these uh, verses now again, that your flock is, has ears to hear and are willing to listen. In your son's name we pray, amen. For those of you in the room that have dealt with parent, uh, teaching children, whether you're a school teacher or anyone who's had to teach children anything, uh, when your kids are little, especially in the parenting world, uh, you try to teach your kids certain things that you hope that that will help them when they grow up. And one of the times in this time of year, we teach things during Christmas to our kids. And here's one of the things we pray that our kids get during Christmas. When they're at someone's home and they're opening a gift, and let's say they're a little bit older than they should know better, and they're done opening a gift and they turn to the person, you wonder, are they going to say What? Thank you, right? Or are they just going to take off or, and go? And so this idea of being grateful. And we try to teach our kids how to be thankful. We try to teach our kids how to be grateful. And we teach them things like this. When someone opens a door for you, say thank you. And if someone says thank you, what do you say in return? You're welcome, all right? And we're teaching our kids these things. And if you haven't learned them yet, I would encourage you to learn these things as well, this attitude of gratefulness. And as I was thinking about this, I reminded of probably one of my favorite stories of my son when he was younger. We were actually at a sporting goods store, and I was teaching him the idea of we need to say thank you or you're welcome as you're running into things. And a guy opens the door for him. As he's walking through, he looks him square in the eyes and says, you're welcome. And it totally threw the guy because he was thinking, should she be saying thank you? But my, and he didn't, he didn't even know how to respond because he went, you're you said what I'm, you know, like, and it was just one of those moments where I just chuckled and we walked on and afterwards I'm like, Tip, it's the other way around. But because when he was little, we would say thank you. And then we would say to kids like, yeah, and just the joy of parenting at times can cause you to just smile. I still, it's almost like engraved in my mind. I remember the guy totally through. But when we think about the idea of gratitude and thankfulness. We come to the text in front of us is Genesis 8, 20 through 22. And by the way, I, as I, I warned the guys in Ironworks, there is so much in this text here, um, but because we're moving on to focus on Christmas, we're gonna, we, I, we just have to get through these two verses, and so uh, get comfortable. Genesis 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasant aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Never will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So let's give a little review of where we've been. Noah, in an act of obedience... Looking at verses 15 and 16, literally, let's go back there in Genesis 8. It says, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark. And what does Noah do? He goes out from the ark, all right? And when he goes out from the ark, he's entering into an unknown world. And and as he enters into this, he is told to to spread out and to populate the earth. It's interesting. I want to pause here for a second because... When uh, one of the things my family enjoys doing is there was a TV show called Alone where they would put people out in the wilderness and you had to survive literally alone. And the last person to, if you want to call it so much, tap out gets a certain amount of money. And so these people are literally living alone by themselves. It's a fascinating psychological thing about more people actually tap out because they can't talk to someone than anything to do with their physical ability, which is interesting. But that side note, as soon as these people land on this island or wherever they put them, immediately they start handling a couple of things. They immediately go, where am I going to find shelter? Where am I going to find food? And how am I going to protect myself? This is the knee-jerk reaction to everyone. And it's interesting, with those even in mind, as we look at our text, we're going to see something completely different. But it's interesting to note that notice what Noah's, I would call it his reaction would be, is the ark has been a spot of safety for him. If most of us were in, let's go back to that alone show, where would be the best place to set up camp? In the ark. Because it's already built. And what does God say to him? Get out. This is not your spot of safety anymore. Go. Most of us would go, but it's already literally built. You know, like in these alone shows, if they come across an already built structure, guess where they go? (laughs) Into the already built structure. They don't go, hey, let's go do something else. And it's interesting here what Noah does. Look at point number one. Noah's act. And what he, do, what he does here is an act of total devotion and gratitude. Noah is coming out of the ark, and I really do believe we need to pause here because there's some words that have been attached to Noah that we have not seen in the same way before. So far, God says it. Noah does it. What does God tell him to do? Build an ark, and Noah builds an ark. He goes into the ark when God says, go into the ark. He goes out of the ark when God tells him to go out of the ark. All right, this is God speaking, Noah responding in obedience. Now, all of a sudden, we see Noah building something. What was the last thing Noah built? An ark. Now, what is Noah going to build? He's going to build an altar. Notice in the text, we do not have God commanding Noah to build an altar. This is Noah's response to what Noah is seeing and what Noah has been through. God is not saying, Noah, as soon as you get out of the ark, this is what you need to do. He literally, we see here is Noah now building an altar. Without being instructed by God, Noah offers a sacrifice to God. And what does he do? He builds an altar. And we're going to look here. I believe this is an altar of gratitude and an altar of total devotion. And we're going to see where it's an altar of both. Noah steps out of the ark. 
When he steps out of the ark, I think sometimes in our minds we have a picture of probably what it did not look like instead of having a picture of what it did look like. If any of you have ever seen any type of massive local flood, remember when you see a massive local flood, what do you see all around you when the waters subside? Disaster, chaos, dead animals over here, dead plant life over here. So imagine what you have when you have a global flood. What are you going to see? Massive destruction on a global amount. And so Noah, when he steps out of the, altar, uh, of the ark, he's going to see death around him. There's going to be animals that haven't decomposed yet. There's going to be plant life that is dead now. Well, there's also going to be some plant life. We know that because, remember, the, the dove comes back. But you're also going to see massive areas of devastation. It's going to take years for trees to grow back and many of these other things. And you're entering into an unknown world. A land that will literally be recovering for many years to come. And we even see that even now with the earthquakes and everything else that are still happening because of the global flood. But Noah, in a moment of incredible, great uncertainty of how he's going to make it. Because let's think about Noah right now. Do they have a grocery store that's waiting for them to go get food? Do they have the local blacksmith that is over there saying, you need a nail? I've got one. Do they have any of the comforts of our world that are not just with them on the boat? They have nothing. They literally are entering into an unknown world. Every skill, every trait, every craftsmanship thing they need is literally, they look around and go, someone's got to do this. This is incredible uncertainty. But notice what Noah does not do. Noah, when he steps out of the ark, is not wringing his hands in passive worry. Noah, when he steps out of the ark, does not say, hey guys, when God's not looking, let's go back in. Noah, with great courage, leads his family. And he's leading his family in something that I think is important. He's leading his family in worship before God. One of the principles that we're going to be really encouraging us as men of the church and men in our own families is leading our families in worship before God. Because it's clear here is when Noah steps out, it's interesting, Noah builds an altar and they put animals on it, clean animals, many clean animals. As Noah's setting the, the, the pattern here, it is not within reason to go, he probably asked his sons to help him build the altar. He probably asked the women and children, if they're there, to help bring in the animals, so we're going to sacrifice them. But we see here is a beautiful picture, a reminder of the importance to lead those around us in worship. I want to take a moment here real quick because it can be easy to say as guys, we're like, yeah, so I'm supposed to leave my family in worship. Yeah, easy said than done, right? So let me just give you a couple of options of how you can do that. Just simple options. How about next Sunday morning when you're tired and you don't even have Sunday school to have to get up for, get your family up and say, hey guys, we're going to go to church today. So that your family hears that, guess what? We're going to go to church today. You can do that, because guess what? Most of you have already done that if you're in the sound of my voice, all right? But they need to hear from you, Dad. This is what we do. You have another opportunity, too. So I, we'll be honest, so far we've hit, out of the 24 Advent readings, I think we're in the 60%, all right? Some of you may be lower and getting all of them read, all right? Like last night, we didn't read, all right? We'll get through it, all right? So guess what we're going to work on tonight? Reading the next Advent thing, we don't sit here and 
do anything, but we're going to lead. We need to lead, and let's read this, all right? Some of them we've said, hey, I'm tired right now. I'm going to let one of my kids read. Hey, one of you read, all right? We're going to work through these things. The sad part is it is not difficult. It is just we don't fully grasp the importance of it at times. Noah here, in a moment of incredible uncertainty, because I know if the Tim Yorgi family was in something like this, we would have, been, we would have had a multiple resource gathering moment. All right, what do we have in front of us? All right, what can we rip off? What can we do this? Once we have that all figured out, then we would start dealing with this. But what does Noah do? In the backdrop of death and judgment, Noah offers not just an offering, but a what type of offering? A burnt offering. Burnt offerings were an act of total devotion. Because guess what the offering is done when it is burnt? It is burnt. All right? You're not getting it back because it is all gone. You do not hold anything back. You do not keep anything back. A whole burnt offering is totally consumed by the fire. And as I was talking with this with uh, my, my uh, Catherine this morning, I said, so that would also mean that if, you if you're cooking and you have a burnt offering, it is totally consumed. Because guess what you do with that cooking when you burn something? You pitch it because it's no good anymore. But what we see here, this burnt offering that we have here is a totally consumed sacrifice. It's interesting, too, biblically speaking, this is the first time the idea of an altar is used in sacrifice. Cain and Abel, they just bring an offering. This is where we see Noah using an altar where he's going to take these animals. When we think of the idea of a sacrifice, a burnt offering, immediately in our minds we should be going, hey, remember like the Mosaic law and things going on there. A burnt offering is a sacrifice of total repentance. Burnt offering sacrifices, you can read about this in Exodus 29, where morning and evening they have a burnt offering sacrifice, a sacrifice of we're sinners in the morning, and what are we at night? We're sinners at night needing to repent. So not only is Noah offering a burnt offering, this burnt offering is one of total devotion, gratitude, and I would even throw in there too an act of repentance. And we say, well, how is it an act of repentance? Because I would say in this act here, we are seeing that Noah is displaying and he's understanding that without the grace of God, so he would be in those waters of judgment. When he leaves the ark, he realizes and he sees the devastation all around him. And he remembers that if it would not be for the fact that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he would be consumed as well. It's interesting, too, again, what Noah doesn't do. Noah does not get out and he turns and look at his sons and say, boy, can we build boats. Noah does not come out and say how great he is or anything else like that. But what Noah does when they step out of the ark, it is immediately offering a sacrifice before God. And again, put yourself in this context. What is he doing? He is taking animals, food, and offering them to the Lord. Most of us would go, hey, Let's just do like a, just a normal offering where we'll just roast a couple of pieces of meat, you know, type of deal. No, they sacrifice this. This is food that they will need to survive. And what do they say? We trust you, God, enough. We've trusted you in the waters of judgment to keep us safe. We also trust you on the opposite side of that, that you will provide for us. Because very quickly, we can, we can lean on our own understanding. Because most of us would do, let's just do like one or two. But you see in the text, it says it took many of them of all of the clean animals to be used, because he even brought these on for sacrifice. You can look at the beginning 
of this text, and we look at that he brought these clean animals along for sacrifice. Now, immediately in your brains, let's go, let's go into the biblical narrative. What did Saul do one day when he was told to wipe out everything? What does Saul do? King Saul. I'm going to keep a couple of these animals back because, you know, like we need them and things like that. No. What does Noah say? My act of gratitude and total devotion is, Lord, here it is, all of it. Notice also, too, we see these clean animals used as a substitutionary sacrifice for Noah and his family. Noah understands, by the grace of God, so would go I. And so th- these, these animals here, in a way, are acting as, if, as Noah's substitute for his own sin that should have condemned him in the waters of judgment. Not only that, but we have, in a way here, a, a very simple yet poignant way of Noah showing us and describing for us the priesthood that is yet to come. Because Noah, what he's doing here before the Lord on behalf of literally his family, the only people left on earth, he is acting as a priestly intercessor on behalf of humanity. And because we we see this, because other texts should remind us of his priestly act that he's doing here, is because God's response to it. Notice what God does to these burnt offering response, this offer of gratitude and total devotion. Verse 21, And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord then says in his heart something. God smells the aroma of the sacrifice, and he speaks. And we need to look at what God says. Point two here, God promises, and we see man's intentions. So this smell of sacrifice comes up. I was listening to a guy talk, and he said, the smell of barbecue, if you want to do it, but I'm like, I don't know if they had the barbecue flavoring. But the smell of cooked meat, right, of this is coming up before the Lord. And with this, when Lord, the Lord's approval is because He is pleased with the heart of the one making the sacrifice. We see this as the same thing when Caleb walked us through Cain and Abel's sacrifice. What made Abel's sacrifice acceptable and Cain's not? The heart of Abel, because Abel came with a heart of faith and trust. What is Noah showing here? A heart of faith and trust, as well as, as we talked before, repentance and devotion to God. This is why the sacrifice is pleasing. And we know these things happen because in Leviticus 26.31, God in that passage there says, when you have these sacrifices, they reek to me. I can't stand the smell of them. I don't even want to smell them. What we see is the divine rejection of the sacrifices and why. Was it because they weren't using the right animals? No, it was because their heart was not one that was trusting God. And what God is saying is, I could care less about your external actions. What I want is the heart. Because the heart is going to be seen, though, in what you do, but the heart is what matters. And this is what we see Noah doing. He has a heart of total devotion and repentance. And the beauty of this, then, is God is going to promise something. And I'll tell you, the beauty of this promise is who God promises it to. You know who He promises it to? Himself. I will never do this again. It's interesting how when God promises it, what is He promising? He's promising a time of long-suffering with man. Because up until then, we had a couple thousand years when man was on the earth rebelling against God and God wipes him out. We've been more than a couple thousand years since this. And if we had a worldwide flood destroy everything, no. We are entering now a time of long suffering with man. I think this text is incredibly beautiful here because God is doing the action here. 
God is extending what we will call all throughout theology as a time of, we call it common grace on all mankind. Where God is extending His grace because what does man deserve? Judgment. But what is God going to give him? Grace. Withholding this judgment for a time. Notice again in your notes there, God promises this to Himself. I will not do this again. Because God is not removing judgment. God does not say, I will no longer judge. That's coming. Nor does God say, we will no longer have death. That still is happening in the world. Nor does God say, we will no longer have damnation. That will still happen. What He says is, that even though sinners every day deserve immediate judgment, God is promising a time of common grace. And we see this when we see that the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous. It rains on the just and the unjust. Even though there are men that stand there and literally blaspheme the name of God, God is still going to give them His grace, that He does not consume them immediately. So turn your Bibles with me real quick to Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Because all throughout the Bible, this time of grace and repentance is seen throughout all of Scripture. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What is He showing mankind right now? Incredible kindness and grace. And what is that kindness and grace to do? Lead man towards God. It's interesting, in this time of grace and repentance that we are living in, notice something that has not changed. Go back to the text. Verse 21, we'll start. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. You know, that's the exact same thing that God said before the flood. That every thought of man was evil. Notice mankind is not changed. And God repeats the same thing about man before the flood as he does after the flood. That every intention is evil from his youth. So what has changed? God has said, I will withhold judgment on man. Has man changed? No, man is still sinning. It's interesting, when we come to passages of Scripture like this, when we, if we fully grasp them, we will start to grasp what the Bible deals with and what the Bible does not deal with. There's a question that sadly trips up many believers, and here's the question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And many people try to start explaining that, but I would argue with you that is not the question the Bible answers. There are two questions, though, that the Bible answers. Here's one of them. The Bible answers the question, why do bad things happen to bad people? Remember we were going through the book of Habakkuk? What did Habakkuk stand there and say? God, when are you going to act? There's violence all over the nation of Israel. When are you going to respond and judge these evil people? Because that's what you do. And God says, I will. I'm going to bring those evil Chaldeans, those Babylonians over, and they're going to judge Israel. And what does Habakkuk say? Hold on. I know we're bad, but we're not what? That bad, right? Why are you going to use bad people to judge the less bad? And God in, in Habakkuk, remember we wrestled through that all. 
And Habakkuk finally had to realize that God is gracious and the righteous will live by faith alone, that there is no one good but God. And not only that, so that's one thing the Bible deals with. Another thing the Bible deals with on that same thing is here's the question that is even harder to answer, is why do good things happen to bad people? Think of the story of Jonah. What is Jonah wrestling with? You're going to give the Ninevites a chance to repent? Those people are what? Really bad, and you're going to be gracious. And the whole time Noah's there, he comes in, and if you want to call one of the lousiest revival sermons of all time, God's going to judge you unless you repent. And then he goes and sits there and goes, all right, God, I know you're a God who judges bad people. What's going on here? You're letting good things happen to bad people. All right, that's what Jonah's rest. The whole book of Jonah's all about, yes, it's called grace. The Ninevites didn't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Did Israel deserve it? No. And so sometimes we get all bent out of shape when we deal with the first one. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? We would say, well, show me a good person first, and then we'll deal with that. Because what Noah is doing is leading us, saying, without you, God, we would be consumed. And one of the beautiful things is that now God is going to give each one of us a visible reminder of how patient he is day in and day out with us. What we deserve versus what we get. So let's look what he says. Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night shall not cease. God's promise is seen in nature. God promises because he is a, we are entering a time of incredible grace and long-suffering. How do we see it? God promises stability within the planet. Let's walk through this for a second, because we live in a day and age where we're in climate craziness. And what did God promise here? Regular routines. I know it's a little mild right now, but it's a whole lot colder than it was in July. Maybe a couple degrees, because Wisconsin's weird, but it's still colder. We have regular seasons. We have summer we have winter, we have seed time, we have harvest, we have day, we have night. Now these regular routines, literally if you study anything of the known world, look at Stonehenge, look at all these other things, they're all about the regular routines of the planet. But what did all those people do? Pointed to the planet as the Savior, not the Savior who is telling you you will have a stable planet. Turn with me to 2 Peter 3. 3 through 7, we'll see what mankind does when God promises there will be a stable planet. 1 Peter, sorry, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 7. So we got scoffers coming. He says, know this first, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, which is, imagine what scoffers do. That's pretty, yeah. Scoffering, following their own evil desires, okay? So they're going to be mocking, following their own desires, not listening to what God has to say, following their own. And here's what they're going to say. Where is the promise of His coming? You said He was going to come. Ever since our fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And we go, you know why? Because God promised that would happen. 
And instead of actually looking at the stability around us, they say this, ah, he's not coming, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God and by the means of these, this world, they then existed in the deluge with water that they perished. But the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist, are being stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So when the unsaved world sees a stable world around us, what do they say? Nothing's going to change. It's all going to be the same. And biblically speaking, what do we say? The reason it is stable is because God had promised. And what does he promise? If he promised stability, what does that also mean? He has also promised the coming judgment in which he will destroy the world. So instead of honoring God, unbelievers see the consistency of God as a reason not to believe. Isn't it interesting that even what God has promised, they will twist in their own blindness. So I want to pause here for a second and help you all out. I would not encourage you to go back through and listen to uh, the inconvenient truth that was out in 2000 and whatever, because none of that has come true. Isn't that inconvenient? And as we look at these things going on around us, here's a promise we know. That God will not allow a worldwide climate catastrophe that kills all mankind until he returns. And so here's what God has promised. You will have cold. You will have heat. You will have seed time. You will have harvest. So guess what you farmers can do? Plant. And you will also be able to harvest. Now the amount of harvest may change. There will be day and there will be night until God returns. You can count on it. And so every morning when you raise your head and you look and you see the sun, what are we to remember? That His mercies are new every morning, and it's not because of you that the sun is coming up. It's because God has promised that these things will happen until He comes back. So what's happening right now? Let's, we're up in Peter. Let's go right over to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to see what Paul, when he's standing on Mount Olympus, is going to remind people of. Acts 17, 30, and 31. The time of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why does He command all people everywhere to repent? The answer is because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Who is that man? Christ. What do we know? There is a day that is fixed. What does the flood tell us? There was a day that was fixed. That fixed time is a time for us to know that God says what he will do will happen at a fixed time. What is our response? To call all mankind to repent because there is a fixed time. All right? Our, our this is not, notice what he says, the stress is not figure out when the fixed time is. Because whether you haven't figured out or not, what does that do about the time that's already been fixed? Does it change its fixedness, if that's even a word? No. But there have been hundreds of books written about when everybody thinks they know the fixed time. I'll help you out. I don't care if you know when the fixed time is. God does. What are you used to be using your energy and time for? Calling the world to repentance, Right? So, we live in a time of incredible patience and long-suffering with a day fixed for judgment by fire. What are we to take from passages of Scripture like this? 
Go back to Genesis chapter 8. We all love to run to Genesis 9, and everybody gets all excited when they see a rainbow, and they're like, hey, remember. All right, what are we all supposed to get excited about? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold, hey, it's getting cold out. God is faithful to his promise. It's getting warm out. What do we say? God is faithful to his promise. There is day and there is night. What are we supposed to remember? God is faithful to his promise. But what are we really good at? Moving on, expecting these things, right? Day in and day out, and we don't ever pause. And with gratitude, thank God for being long-suffering and gracious. So I was mulling over these things this week. I was reminded over and over and over again of the faithfulness of God. That it's the 17th, so like in four days from now, we'll have the darkest day on the calendar. You know what will happen on the 22nd? The sun will come up a little bit earlier. And guess what we're moving towards? Spring. Why? Because God has promised it. Now in Wisconsin, we get multiple false springs, but we will be moving towards spring because we know God has promised it. We don't need to go out there and beat, the, beat drums or have light festivals or anything else like that, hoping that God will keep his word. Because what does Genesis tell us? It is a promise. It is a guarantee. Yet what do we do so quickly? Forget these promises and guarantees right in front of us. And so then all of a sudden, when something goes on in our lives, we say, does God really care? Or what he said, does it really matter? And what are we rebuked with every single day when the sun rises? What does God say? I keep my word. When we see sunsets go down, do we remember God keeps his word? The predictability of the world around us is a reminder that everything is happening because why? God said it. And so I want to share with you how this played out a little bit in my own life here real quick this week. And how the importance of what you believe impacts how we are to think about the world around us. Because I would say all of us would read that verse and go, well, duh, that's what it says. And so what do we do? Go on our whistling merry way. And all of a sudden, when the sun goes down tonight, we all just go, oh, it got darker a little bit earlier. Why? Because God promised it. So what should it getting dark a little earlier remind you of? The promises of God are coming true in those areas. What does that mean about the rest of your life? Trust him. Simply trust him. Take him at his word because we see it over and over and over again. And so, this week, as I pen those words and they're sitting there on my, on my computer, I had, a fun, I had a doctor's appointment on the 15th. 
that reminded me of my own frailty. So here's what I do know, because God's word says it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken, right? That he knit me together in my mother's womb exactly how he wanted to knit me together. There's not a mistake. Now, God has a knack for giving Yorgi's terrible pancreases. All right, he really likes to do that. And so, my daughter, because of the fall of Adam and sin, she, her pancreas just quit. What a quitter, right? Well, I'm from the line of bad pancreases as well. And so, finally, I was able to move from non-normal life, if you want to call it. They find, the doctor finally came in and said, yeah, you finally are a type 2 diabetic. And I'm like, great. So, after the doctor gets done telling me all about how you won't be able to enjoy food anymore and all the other wonderful things that you will deal with, I'm sitting there Saturday morning. And guess what came up Saturday morning while well, I'm drinking my coffee because the wonderful type 2 diabetes I, I have gives me an incredible sugar rush somewhere between 2 and 5 in the morning. My wife absolutely loves that because it wakes me, like, right up. I am wide awake, like wide, wide awake. And so I'm sitting there drinking coffee, no longer able to put maple syrup in it. And I'm like, can I just have it on the side just to look at, you know? And, and so I'm sitting there drinking that. And all of a sudden, I see the sun start to rise. And guess what I've been working on all week? What is the sun supposed to remind us? That God is faithful to his promises. Did this take God by surprise? Was he like on the 14th going, I don't know what's going on. Was he not on his throne? I mean, you could sit here. Here are the things that can go through your mind. Like, I'm one of his underling shepherds. You can't take care of him, right? I mean, because we all act as if like somehow I'm on a higher level of spirituality than the rest of you, which I'm not, all right? But everybody likes to think that the pastor is somehow more spiritual. And so if the pastor gets sick, what does it mean about the rest of us? You're all shot, right? No, that's not what God's word says. He goes, I am a man of clay as well. And so I'm sitting there thinking through this, and I'm like, what did Noah do when he saw death and destruction? He gave thanks. And then I'm drawn to 1 Thessalonians 5. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16... I guess it would help if I'm in Thessalonians. This is Timothy. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. What does it tell us? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks to God in some circumstances. Is that what the text says? In all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're wondering when you're sitting there and the sun rises over your falling apart clay life, what are you supposed to do? Thank you, Lord, for another day. This is what God wants. So I sat there and here's the prayer that I prayed. I said, thank you, God, for entrusting me with this. You are good. 
and all your ways are good, please use this to sanctify me. Because here's what I heard when the doctor starts telling you about all the things you can do to help curtail the effects of it. Guess what I'm really good at doing? Going gung-ho at everything they said you could do because I'm going to fix this thing. And then my helper says, relax, Tim. When they say exercise is good, that doesn't mean you kill yourself. Exercise. All right? Because the pressure is to do what? Lean on our own understanding and say, I got this, God. Instead of saying, may this be used for your glory. Because here's what happens. So maybe I met the thing that eventually, in years to come, end up being the thing that helps promote me to eternity, right? But then I stand here in this morning as I was trying to figure out exactly how to wrap it up. My eye was drawn to this. What does this remind us of? Because Christ came to die for sinners, and when He came to die for sinners, He was not only just died for sinners, but rose again. And so because He lives, what does that mean about tomorrow as the song was bouncing my head? Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because without Him, what are we facing? An incredible world of uncertainty. But because God has promised that the things will continue on day in and day out exactly like they are until that fixed day happens, my response is to God glorify me as I glorify you. And it's this idea of what does it mean to glorify me? It's literally saying, I am nothing. You are everything. You get the glory in it all. Because he lives, and so in my mind I'm going like, and even Catherine at the end of this said, how are you going to wrap this up because the song you're singing is Go Tell It on the Mountain. I'm like, I know, we should be singing Great is Thy Faithfulness or Because He Lives. And I said, all right, so what we'll do is at the end, I'll just go like this. Here's where we're going. Because of all these things that God has to say, that's why we can literally shout it to the world around us that He's born and everything else that comes with it. There were so many things in this of the attitude of gratitude, our attitude of complete devotion before the Lord. Man's wickedness and God's grace. And these are in just small, two small verses in the Bible. And so I would encourage you to be people of the Word who love it, to read it, to study it. And as you do, I really truly do believe you will see God in all His glory and fall down and worship Him and do what we're about ready to sing. Tell it wherever you go. Let me pray. Dearly Father, thank you it is by your grace we stand. Thank you it is by your grace we see these regular routines happening day and night, morning and evening, and may all of these things cause us to humbly bow before you knowing that you are the one sustaining the world around us. Thank you for this church body and may we glorify you in all that is said and done. In your son's name we pray. Amen.